You're listening to Code Chefs, the podcast for hungry developers. Buckle down and ready up. We're serving JavaScript, web design, soft skills, backend development, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Vincent Tang and Herman Gamboa. Order up! Welcome to Code Chefs, the podcast for hungry web developers. I'm your co-host today, Vincent, and with me is... Herman Gamboa. Hi, guys. So we're both full-stack developers from sunny Central Florida. And for today's topic, we're going to be talking about the JavaScript event loop, what it is, and why you should care about it. So in case you're not familiar with the JavaScript event loop, it is a mechanism that happens behind the scenes in JavaScript, as JavaScript is a single-threaded language. It helps you handle how different things that happen in your code base. So if you have, for instance, asynchronous code that needs to execute at a later point in time, for instance, promises that need to be resolved when you're making an API call to the backend or another external system, how that process and that and that actual mechanics of that workflow actually works. So German, do you want to talk a little bit more about what the event loop is and, and more about it? Sure. Well, first I want to tell you why you should care about the event loop, right? Because it's not one of those things you access directly when you actually write JavaScript. It's one of those things that are like a background thing and you're like, okay, I really don't need to know it to be able to work, to be able to do my like to be able to write code. But it's important to know it because it's going to help you like with those little like weird scenarios you might run into. And plus, it's good knowledge to have. It's good to understand the tools that you work with, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the main reason you should care about it is what we, when you have like race conditions. Now, race conditions are not like the most common thing nowadays, just because a lot of mechanisms have been built into the language, such as async await promises, that kind of help a lot with that, right? But before back back in my day, which is not that long ago, it's like what four years, three years. Mm-hmm. We used to actually have to do a lot of callbacks for all our asynchronous stuff. That's the reason you, um, if you remember, you had what was called callback hell. Oh, yeah, I remember where you have like something that's nested. You, you write a an API call, right, and then you, and then you nest another API call inside that code, and then you nest another API call inside that code that needs to wait that needs to wait for the first thing to resolve. By the time you know it, you got like this huge chain of like curly brackets that just go on forever and it's impossible yes. to read it's impossible to debug it's impossible to even see where anything is at your code base <laughs> correct especially because the call stacks and all the errors and debugging wouldn't work properly with those so it's really it's important to understand like the event loop because it's going to help you understand all the asynchronous stuff that happens in javascript and obviously when you're learning all the async stuff is kind of weird right especially because for the most part when you learn about programming languages you're told, oh, it executes from top to bottom. But when you start throwing all that async stuff in there, that's not always the case. It is the case, but not top to bottom from the file. It becomes top to bottom from whatever the execution context is at that point. Yeah. yeah. So you should care about that. And go ahead, ahead, Vincent. Sorry. Wait, is JavaScript considered a concurrent language? Like as in, even though it's single threaded, it's concurrent because of the event loop, correct? Sounds right. Uh, uh, I want to say yes. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think so. I mean, if like a, a non-concurrent language with something that acts on a single thread and just executes from top to bottom, this would be something like Python, right? Correct. Or, or C, or but but a more something that's a little different would be C plus plus ah, C plus plus or Go, GoLang, in which like things are where you can have like actual concurrency baked behind the scenes where things run on separate threads, which you can have an execution here, an execution path here, and another right here, another right here, and they can all run in parallel. Correct. And those are a little bit, those, every single language can, just as a side note, 
And I don't want to get distracted with this, but every language can actually have an event loop. It's just with JavaScript, it's not an explicit thing you have to create, right? It's something that's that's going to be in there. It's going to be like baked into the actual way the language works. So yeah, and I just want to tell you a quick story when I was talking about like, hey, like why you should care. So one of the first apps I wrote was a weather app. It's like, I know how original uh, back when uh, mm-hmm. I think underground weather used to be a thing. I don't think they're a thing anymore. So I didn't know anything about how to handle like uh, all the all the asynchronous stuff. And one of the first times you encounter asynchronous stuff is when you're actually trying to make calls to like a different service, like just like when you're learning about HTTP calls or network calls. So I didn't know how to handle it. So oh my, that my first first app I ever wrote was just a hell of like calling stuff. And then I was finding like, oh, you know what? Maybe I have to wait for something. So I'm gonna wrap it in a set timeout and hope that it works. Right, because I was I didn't understand how things executed, so I had those race conditions where like I was hoping things would happen in a specific way without understanding it for my app to actually work. And something that will probably take me thirty minutes to write now, it took me like a whole week because I didn't know. So mm-hmm. it, it was a mess. I since refactored it, and that was like two years ago. But yeah, it's gonna help you learn those things. It's also gonna help you make your court your code more performant, right? Because sometimes when we write, when we understand the event loop and understand everything that goes on with it we can kind of maybe write better animations in JavaScript. Like for example, as a side note, if you want to use better animations that are not like janky and you don't want to use set timeout or set interval, you would have used something like set and uh, request animation frame, which kind of works with the event loop in the way that JavaScript executes to do stuff at the right times. But yeah, so that, this is really what you should care. It kind of gives you those little backgrounds to where, where you're going to run into a wall uh, you're not going to know what it is. If you have this knowledge in the back of your head, you'll kind of be able to like start figuring out where to go from there. Yeah. So oh, for sure. Yeah. So for sure. Like same with your, like in my perspective, when I first actually learned how asynchronous code worked in a, in a JavaScript application, I think it was actually, when we went to our first or second hackathon. We did a, a podcast episode of this earlier on, on like episode five, I think I can't remember offhand which one it was. But we were building like a speed dating app, kind of like based off Omega or Chat Roulette, but for 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 like phone dating, right? And I just had to do most of the design in the front end, but you were writing the back end code. And this is like my first time I've ever seen Node.js at any point in time. This was about two years ago. And we had you had built a callback queue event system, or sorry, a, a system where you would look at changes in a database, right? And see when something would change. And then if that change happened in that record in that field, it would send like an SMS to the user and then would have an SMS login flow, right? So that was one thing that kind of like introduced me to the topic of how those systems work. But when it actually comes to actually going through and understanding at least asynchronous code in a code base is when I had to build my first application for a printing CRM company that I work at my current place as I work at an agency. And uh, we had to design the whole system on the backend side, and I had to write pretty much all the backend controllers and the repository functions, all that, and how it interacted with the database that always goes through an asynchronous call to the database, waits for the, the actual SQL query to execute behind the scenes, and then comes back to you. But, so that's that's kind of how I learned at least how some of this stuff works and understand the context. But yeah, yeah. And so, um, so yeah. So. The event loop in JavaScript, in a nutshell, is basically going to work like this, right? And this is like our first time kind of explaining a weird concept that would benefit from graphics and audio text in audio format. So bear with us. Uh, so basically what's going to happen is we're going to kind of start from the way, like when JavaScript initializes, right? So the browser, we're going to talk about this in the context of the browser. Node.js works slightly ever so differently. But what happens is 
the browser is going to initialize a JavaScript engine. In this case of, for example, of Chrome, it's V8. That's going to kind of start like turning on the world for your script to run. So what's going to happen, the, one of the things I'm initializing that aspect is going to be the event loop. So the event loop actually is going to start running. It's going to be the first thing that starts running, right? And then your code will start executing from top to bottom. So within the event loop, we have two major idea, two major concepts to consider. We have what's called the call stack, and we have what's called the message queue. So the message queue, it's going to be the easiest one to explain. It's a queue. It's going to be a queue where... It's, yeah, sorry. I still love it there a second. So it's going to be... A, it's a first-in, first-out, right? It's a first-in, first-out process with the, with the message queue. Yeah, so it's going to be a queue that's going to go ahead and capture different events that happen within the browser. So it can be like if you're if you're listening to like a, like an event that's like oh on mouse click or on mouse scroll or all those type of events will be firing and they can go in that queue if there's a listener. If there's no listener attached to that, then it's just going to go into the void, right? So, and then part of those things that can, that can actually go in there is listeners for um, events that are asynchronous. That's kind of like the, the message queue in a nutshell. Now the call stack, a call stack seems kind of weird, right? But it's basically gonna what's gonna happen is as your code starts executing, whenever it hits something that actually needs to do any work on, so a function, a loop, or whatever, or a mm-hmm. this case specific case functions, it's gonna get added to that call stack. And then if there's, it's gonna go ahead and keep add, keep seeing what it needs to add. So it's a life of queue. So the last thing to be added to. It's going to be the first thing it executes. So I, I've been saying, I think you mm-hmm. explained it in terms of a pancake stack, right? So to get to like the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get, yeah, so it's like you, you go to IHOP and it's like one in the morning and a good night. You get a, a, a stack of pancakes, right? And, and you and you stick them on top, like one after another. Well, you can't take the, the, the bottom pancake out first, right? You have to take the, the, the top pancake and eat that first, right? So whatever whatever pancakes you have, you have to, you have to take the top one first every time to eat it. Same context, right? Yeah, so as your code's running and it's, it's the of food. <laughs> so, so as your code's running and it's finding functions, you'll keep adding them. And then once it's kind of done finding functions, you'll kind of start executing them. So there's sometimes you can add something and execute it on the spot. So for example, if your first if your first if your first thing is a console log, it's something it can execute instantly, right? So it will get added and then popped out of the call stack. But if there's other stuff in it that I can keep adding, they'll keep adding them and they'll start kind of like popping them out. So it's and then the the first call stack is like your global context stack type thing. Mm-hmm. That's like the first thing that happens within the scope of your script. So there's always a call stack, and then so the event loop is running through all the things. So the event loop is really just so you have a it's basically a while loop, and inside the while loop your call runs right, and then that's basically what the event loop is. Obviously, a lot fancier than that. So what's mm-hmm. going to happen is if it encounters anything that kind of fires a message into that cost into that uh into that message queue, once the event loop mm-hmm. is kind of done running, so it's going to be done running once your call stack is clear. So it's going to go execute all your synchronous code. It's going to be working on those stacks, adding them, so taking them away. Mm-hmm. Each function kind of triggers a new call stack, so it'll kind of like clear itself out. And then once it's kind of once the call stack is clear, it's going to go ahead and start processing those messages where that message is an is something that's a, an event, a browser mm-hmm. event or if it's something such as a network call. So most things in JavaScript and in the, within the browser itself are asynchronous, mm-hmm. asynchronous. So most input output stuff is asynchronous. So what qualifies here is input and output, basically things like, um, or 
IO, things like network calls are your most popular input output stuff. Same things, mm -hmm. so things like browser events, such as you clicking on something are going to be are also considered input and output uh, IO. So it's also, it's also going to be uh, asynchronous. So start processing those. And the thing about those is each method runs to completion. So if that message itself, which what it triggers is a callback function to do whatever the event needs to, whatever the event triggers it to do, it's going to run to completion. Mm -hmm. So that callback function can trigger more messages to the queue, more stuff, and it'll trigger a new call stack and wood in it. And it's going to run that thing to full completion before moving on to the next one. And that's sort of how it'll work and it'll kind of keep looping over. And then once mm -hmm. once the actual event loop finds out, hey, there's nothing else in my call stack, there's no, no messages in my queue, I'm out. Then your JavaScript exits, your, your script pretty much exits at that point. Now, in the context of a mm -hmm. browser, it doesn't really ever exit just because you have stuff always going on. But if you're running something like a Node.js, you'll write a script, and once the script ends, you'll get that, it'll exit and the script finalizes. Whatever, what about some examples, just like some simple contrived examples? So for instance, let's say we've got a, a JavaScript file, we're executing that JavaScript file, right? And we have on line one, it says console log, dot a console log hello and then the second line is a set timeout function of five seconds and it says console log resolve timeout right and then right after that right below it and like maybe like the 10th line there's like another log that says console.log last line right so if you're going through that file when you're going through that call call stack call stack right javascript is reading top to bottom first unless there's like a function call that hoists up first but that's not in this case but anyways it reads the first console log and it puts out in the call stack, right? And that finishes executing right away because it's not, it doesn't need to be executed at a different point in time. So it doesn't go to the callback queue. And then when it sees a set timeout function, it sees it and puts in the call stack. And then because it has to resolve at a different point in time, it puts it in the call stack queue, right? Callback, uh, callback queue. Callback queue. And then it, it does the last console log. So the first console log shows up on the page, then the last console log shows up on the page, and then five seconds later, the second console log shows up on the page, right? Mm -hmm. At least in terms of how you write it in that order. But let's say, like, hypothetically speaking, what if we wrote like 2 million console logs and we wrote on line 100 a set timeout function of like 2 milliseconds? What would, what would, what would happen there, German? We would write that. Ooh, interesting. Run that. So what would happen there is, so a set timeout is automatically going to be like an event. It's going to be something that kind of like fires once it's done. It'll, once it's kind of mm -hmm. done waiting, it'll add itself to the message queue. The callback will be added to the message queue. Mm -hmm. So what would happen there, even if your timeout was zero, it's still going to go ahead and add that to the message queue. So remember, as we said, your call stack has to be clear before your message queue starts executing. So even if you had a million console logs or a million things going, well, not a million things going on. In this case, a million console logs because they're constantly getting added and popped out of the message queue, out of the sorry, the call stack. Uh, it's actually not going to go ahead, even if it's at the top and if it's a set timeout zero. It's going to wait for those console logs to execute. Then it's going to execute mm -hmm. whatever was in the set timeout. The only exception to that though is if it's like a, if it's a promise, right? Then it would resolve in the middle of that million list of console logs, as far as I'm aware. It might. So basically, that's when we get into a different territory where it gets more complicated to talk about the event loop, where we actually have the concept of called tasks or micro tasks. So mm -hmm. yeah. So basically, in the way the way we kind of described it, where things run after things are after it's kind of clear after your call stack is kind of clear, it can mean sometimes things end up waiting for a while. So in the context of using something like async await or pro which is just promises with a nicer syntax, mm -hmm. what happens is we actually 
a promise will trigger a, uh, ba, 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 if I'm correct, it'll trigger a what's called a task. So there's a different queue in here where it, it'll kind of execute as soon as it can, but usually before the end of the call stack. So it's a little bit fast. So it, it'll execute a little bit faster. What happens if, like with the promise, you can always resolve or you can reject the promise, right? So for instance, if you make a call to a service or like an, like an app on API call and then it fails, right? It, it will reject the, the promise, right? And then you'll get an error. Mm-hmm. If, if you do it in this case, will you, will you, you have that call stack that gets called for that function, that outbound API call, and it goes to the callback queue, but then the callback queue would fail, right? And then that would then get removed on the callback queue. That makes sense, even though it's resolving or rejecting. At least as far as I'm aware, I'm not. I don't remember exactly how that works, though. But if something fails within that, it's probably gonna break, uh, depending on how bad it fails. Yeah, that's where it gets weird, and especially when you got when you're gonna catch stuff. Yeah, that's a, actually I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. We have to check that off. Actually, let's see what other notes we make. Yeah, I think that was pretty much it for the episode, right? Unless you have anything else to add. Oh yes, it was just something a, a short and sweet segment of of just how event loop works. Event loops work. Well, yeah, so it's basically uh, something I did want to add here. So it's basically just a fancy wild loop that's going to help you handle all your asynchronous stuff. And the way you can kind of use this to start debugging stuff is. It's basically like if you want to think about it. So one common mistake that people make sometimes when they're using learning a single wait is they'll kind of await every single function inside a function. So basically, let's say you have a function that has to make three network calls, right? Mm-hmm. You don't always want to have a wait on every single call because then it's going to go, okay, we're going to wait for one, wait for the next one, wait for the next one. Now, right. if the input input of the other one relies on the output of the previous one, then yes. But let's say they're three separate network calls, then you don't want, you want to like let the event loop work on them at the same time. And then you want to use something such as promise all for to, for you to wait to, for them to come back and then handle them there. So yes. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Instead of running like, instead of like running oh. network A call and then waiting for network A call to resolve, then network B call to resolve, then network C afterward. Which, which the length of the full all the calls you made is A plus B plus C. You could just run them all like in a kind of like it's like a horse track, and they're all the horses are just running at the same time. Yes, and you, you see, and then like not all the horses will get there at the finish line at the same time, but they'll get there roughly all in the same duration, roughly. So instead of like waiting for horse A to run, then horse B, then horse C, you just run all three of them at the same time, and they all finish at different times. Which that concept threw me off for the longest time because when I we was originally learning about async await. Um, I would actually get different results back because, for instance, like horse A might finish first, and then next time you run it, horse B might finish first, <laughs> and then you run into like all these weird things. So yeah, promise all is definitely a good thing for for running all the executions at the same time, or all the up and API calls at the same time, and waiting for all of them to resolve, like and then executing uh, more code after that. So yeah, definitely that. Definitely. Oh, and then there's another thing I mentioned earlier, just to like bring it back up, is a lot of languages have event loops you can add to them. So for example, you can have asynchronous PHP or with mm-hmm. React. So it's called React PHP, or Python will have something called as I think Python now has a built-in event loop type deal. But before when I used to do Python years ago, it used to be uh, something called Twisted, and then that would give you the ability to do uh, asynchronous Python. Because Python out of the box, I think Python 3 doesn't have asynchronous callback functions. 
Correct. At least that's why I'm aware. It always executes an asynchronous faction unless you add a library on top, which, if I'm not mistaken, is just the event loop behind the scenes. Correct. And then uh, the thing about the event loop, something that it's, I didn't want to mention earlier until after we got done kind of explaining stuff, is it's not part of JavaScript itself. It's part of the JavaScript environment. JavaScript by itself, mm-hmm. just it's a single threaded line by line deal. But then depending on the execution context, such in this case, V8 or whatever you want to use in spider monkey, whatever, it will mm-hmm. change. So it, that's where it gets weird. And that's where it shouldn't really matter. Hopefully each browser kind of sticks to the actual implementation that's specified in those boring docs that no one reads from W3 something. Uh-huh. So uh, it's specified the way it's supposed to work is specified there. Now, implementations may vary as anything in software does. Oh, there's another thing I just remembered. When we were talking about callback stacks and callback queues, the concept boils down originally to computer science terms. There's something called a stack in a heap, right? A callback stack is a stack, right? It's just information that piles in an orderly manner on top of each other. But when you put things in a callback to queue, as far as I'm aware, they're just memory. You're just pointing to memory addresses from the call call stack to the callback queue. And the callback queue lives in the heap. Is that right? I think that's right. I have to check. That. I want to say that's right. That's one of the things that always get conf- that always get weird and weird to me, especially when it's- that's more on the computer science terms, though. No, no, no. It makes sense, especially when you kind of start throwing in the whole concept of closures and how they and mm-hmm. how they work within all those contexts. That's the one thing I don't ever really get comfortably. But yeah, I guess this was our first episode. We're gonna be going into like a little series of technical JavaScript concepts explained. We just kind of figured out starting with the event loop, which is kind of one of those things that deal with the most interesting is in JavaScript, which is synchronous stuff, would be a good way to kind of start. We will be linking in the description, in the show notes to like different resources. We're clearly, we're obviously not as expert on this. We're kind of relying on the work of many, many people here. And we'll kind of link mm-hmm. you guys to some tools where that, that will go ahead and take you to like the next level when understanding the event loop. But now that we've talked about this in later episodes, we can actually talk about things like promises and all those weird new JavaScript features that have come out over the past years. Yeah, we can definitely talk about more ES6 features, ES7, ES8 features, some of the newest and latest and greatest uh, that's coming out with TC39, which is the proposal scripts for the new standard features in JavaScript. So we're definitely going to to much more in-depth niche content uh, down the road that's going to be more shorter in nature, as German said. So German, do you want to, do you think it's time and ready for dessert? Yes. So I'm ready to eat because I'm explaining this kind of made me tired. Uh, so, so, so again, so just for new listeners, the third time is like a little section where we kind of like give you updates of what's going on in our lives or what new hobbies we're picking up since Vincent seems to have a new hobby every single week. <laughs> so one of those. I like trying to things out. Yeah. So uh, that's what we'll be going into. So Vincent, you go ahead and start. Tell us what's sweet in your life this week. So I grew up in Florida, right? And I, I've, I, I'm, a, I, I can swim, and the topic is actually swimming. And I actually got scuba certified recently too, and like uh, two months ago. But uh, there's been something like in the back of my mind for the longest time that I've actually never properly learned how to swim. Like my dad taught me in our swimming pool back in the day, but I don't actually know what a proper swim stroke looks like. I don't know how to do backstrokes either. And I can only swim just so far before I start sinking. And that's definitely not a good thing if you live in Florida. So for the longest time, I've actually wanted to take swim lessons at the YMCA. And I did it starting last weekend. And it's just been like an eye-opening experience in terms of like how much effort and like how 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 your perspective has changed in terms of like how you can actually swim properly. Like there's so many ways you can move your arm. There's so many ways you can kick with your feet. There's so many ways you can like move your abs and, 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 and butt muscles to actually get the proper 
form down to get the most amount that you're getting after every stroke that you're swimming through, if you're swimming breaststroke or if you're swimming backstroke. So, so that's, that's what's been on my mind lately. And it's been like a really cool experience to, to actually learn how to properly swim at the YMCA in case you don't know how to swim. And a lot of my friends actually surprisingly don't know how to swim that live in Florida as well, which is kind of strange. So if you can make the investment to learn how to properly swim, it's definitely worth it. In my opinion, you definitely learn a lot. This is my second day out of six days for six weeks. And it's really not that expensive. It's like $110 for six weeks. Definitely a worthwhile investment. You should definitely check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, that's me. What about you, Dermot? So lately I've been kind of thinking about either getting a new laptop or kind of like upgrading my computer. I mean, I kind of want a laptop because it's a little bit more comfortable. I get tired of sitting on my desk sometimes mm-hmm. and I would like to be like move around the house. Yeah, I like work. I, I, I kind of work mostly in Linux. Well, I do a boot when I need to do like something like edit video or edit this podcast whenever I do edit them. I kind of have to boot into <laughs> I, have, I have to boot into Windows because I use a bunch of Adobe stuff, which does not play well with Linux, sadly. So yeah. That's the only problem with Linux. It's just there's, there's limited apps that you can use out there because the, the user base is much smaller. Yeah, although you can actually play a lot of games now. Since uh, Steam has Steam Proton, you can basically play like, I could play Halo on my machine and that's not an issue. I can play GTA. Five. I don't know if you've heard recently, but Mac OS, Apple has the Apple Store, right? And they've got a lot of different regulations involved in, in, in terms of like how you have to publish an application to the, to the store and like they take it like a 30% cut for each transaction. Oh, the whole fight with and speak, Speaking, this the, the fight with Epic Games, which is the creators mm-hmm. of Fortnite against Mac OS. And Epic tried to bypass the, the rules and regulations by directly or uh, directly collecting money from the users through their site as opposed to Apple itself. So they don't have to go through the 30% cut. And then Apple actually took away all that and revoked their access to the Apple Store. So now Mac OS might not have Unity support down the road. (laughs) Or not as great Unity support for video games. So that's a nice interesting thing to know. Yeah, so that's going to be looking for a new laptop because I have a MacBook, right? But I've had some issues with it. And I kind of don't feel like buying a new MacBook just because... It's still, in, I don't feel like buying any Intel-based machine right now. Plus, it, especially when it comes to Mac, you know, they're, they're going to change the whole, like the whole like hardware in the next two years. So it's like, I don't want to. Mac OS has different CPUs now. Yeah, That's I don't right. want to have to like be one of the it, it would be, guinea pigs. <laughs> I, I don't, don't want to have to guinea pig it, especially when I need to get work done. Uh, so, especially since tools, I don't, I'm not sure how tools like Docker and like although I do a lot of backend stuff. So if you're doing backend stuff, you're normally working with Linux as it is. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if my tool, all my all my tools will be compatible in the long term, or I'm pretty sure they will be. I just know how compatible. So yeah, so just looking for a new machine. I've been I've been thinking about getting an XPS 17, but then again, that's ooh Adele. Yes, but that's a that's a um, the downside to that. It's an Intel machine, and I don't know. I I just don't feel like Intel machines are worth it that much right now. Especially you want AMD. Yeah, like man, I, I have like a, I have a 39. The AMD Ryzen. I have a 3950 on this PC. It's like 32 cores of uh, yeah, it's 32. 32. Yeah. 32 cores. They have 32 cores. Yeah, bro. I haven't upgraded my PC in like I think I think almost like four years. So I don't even know what the specs are anymore, <laughs> and I haven't watched any Linus Tech Tips in probably like two years either. So yeah, I'm so outdated and like anything going on in the in the in the, in the IT world. Yeah, and we also have, uh, there, there's also new GPUs coming out later this year, which are going to be awesome. Are, are we on 2080 Ti's right now? Uh, yes, it's gonna be, they're going to be releasing the 3000 series. Oh, shoot. See, this, I, I, like every time I go and like whenever I get a new GPU for 
Actually, I do need to get a GPU for, for my computer pretty soon. I usually go on uh, that website, GPUbenchmarks.com uh-huh. or something like that. And you can see like the different ratings where they just put like a numeric value against each of the GPUs and how it performs against older GPUs. And you can see like what the performance improvement is. So that's usually what I do when I'm shopping for at least graphics cards. But yeah, uh, that's it for me. Uh, do you have anything else to add, German, before we close up? No, that's it for me as well. All right. So thanks for tuning in, guys. And we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Thanks for dining with us on Code Chefs. We hope we satisfied your hunger. For show notes and more insider info on today's topic, visit our website at www.codechefs.dev. Plus, follow us on Twitter at CodeChefsDev. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and join us back here for the next one. Uh, Check, please.